The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffeehouse Shots. I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and John McTernan, former political secretary for Tony Blair. And we are talking about Tony Blair. Fraser, you recently wrote Tony Blair is back and offering himself as a global consultant to the Starmer government. His company claims to have 100 staff embedded in governments around the world. Will the UK be next? What's your answer? Well, I think the UK very much will be next. We are seeing the return of Tony Blair. It's an audacious return as well. And people may have vaguely worked out that he was doing some advising for sort of slightly shady Kazakhstani figures, you know, for a while. But he didn't really show his face in Britain because he faced these awkward questions about the Iraq war. Uh, So his portfolio was very much a foreign one. But now it seems to have reached a threshold of where two things have happened. Firstly, he has now morphed his previous speech-making business into Tony Blair Institute. Now, this TBI is a huge organization with, as it says, people embedded, that's his word, embedded in governments over the world. If you go onto his website, he'll tell you that they're not just in the back room either. They're in the prime minister's office or in the president's office. So he is offering, offering through his consultancy, his basically governmental services to a whole bunch of countries. Um, and right now from Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Tony Blair Institute is a busy outfit. So far, he hasn't been doing very much in Britain, but that's changed. We saw it changing during the pandemic where he was hawking um, his ID card under the guise of vaccine passports. But now he did recently did an event with Keir Starmer where he was, the two of them were making up that they were on good terms. Now, it was one stage where I was watching the Q&A and Keir Starmer was saying to Blair, we were together in Davos recently. And I did a little bit of a double take because that isn't a sentence Jeremy Corbyn would ever have uttered. It's not one that probably Ed Miliband would have uttered. This is Keir Starmer who wants to advertise his closeness to Tony Blair um, in a pitch for, I imagine, the constituency that first put the Blair project together in the first place. And Blair himself, obviously, wants to demonstrate that he's got or about to get very good connections in Britain. And so you see the intriguing prospect of Blair coming back in a private capacity, but he's still got his house just 15 miles down the road from Chequers. So he's got his own country house. He's got his, apparently, a red box, which he reads, and he even sends his um, Sunday email off to eight in the same way he did when he was number 10. So we see the intriguing return, if there's going to be a Labour government, of Blair there as chief external advisor. John, is it still Tony Blair's world and we're just living in it? No, look, I think the thing that um, thing that I always say, the Blair government was elected in the last quarter of the 20th century. A Starmer government, if elected, will be governing in the second quarter of the 21st century. Very different time, very different context. And the thing about Tony is, Tony has made himself relevant, stayed relevant, and now he's being listened to by, by, by a new party leader. And I did some work for Tony Blair Associates. I think it's much better that everything's folded into this one organization, TBI. We did some work, uh, I did some work in Kazakhstan, working with the prime minister there in the prime minister's office. And one thing I would say is, 
Kazakhstan has taken a very different position uh, on Russia, ingrad- the Russia in- invading Ukraine than Belarus has, and so there, there are you know there are signs that the, the, the Blair intervention in government can improve governance and can can assist in countries. And look, I think it's better now that the whole package is the Tony Blair Institute, and I've got to give its full name, Fraser. It's the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Uh, oh. One one thing I think that's important for for that is that. It's a global perspective that's allowed him to to stay active in politics and policy. And the Institute really started by looking at policy challenges and producing progressive answers to them that were then available for any progressive government who wished to, to take them and seize on them. All we now have across the world is this rash of government, you know, President Biden, Olaf Scholz, Chancellor Scholz, and uh, Prime Minister Albanese in, in Australia. All people who are much more like in character, much more like Keir Starmer than they are like Tony Blair. The charismatic politicians are on the right, the populist right, and the answer actually seems to be more workaday politicians who've got a plan. And so Tony's role in this is he's helping people with some of the plans and some of the ideas, and some of them are old ideas uh, like um, ID cards now, digital ID cards, and some of them are genuinely new, like the idea that the vaccine should be separated to two doses, which actually sped up the uh, the coverage of the vaccine during during the pandemic and enabled the country to move out of lockdown faster. So there's something, there's still something at the spy, in the spine of, of Tony, which is new labor, it's public-private, it's also pragmatic rather than ideological. Uh, but yeah, it, I, th- I, was, I was actually in the, in, in the con- at the conference in the room for the, the, the Star Rumbler Q&A, and the thing that I felt about it was chemistry. There was real chemistry between those two guys. They clearly talk a lot uh, behind the scenes. I don't actually see Tony coming as a formal or informal chief advisor. It is simply the fact that prime ministers have a very, very, very small peer group. I mean, obviously in the Tory party, there's lots of former prime ministers around at the moment. But apart from Tony, there really aren't former prime ministers around. And Tony really didn't have a peer group of former Labour prime ministers. And so I think from that point of view, just having been in number 10 before, being a prime minister before, is a very valuable thing. And you see it when they work internationally, the prime ministers do get value from other prime ministers because nobody can really have somebody from their cabinet in their peer group. And so there's an element of that too, which is that it is helpful to have somebody who's been in this a similar situation who, who you're able to reflect on with, not necessarily take advice from, but have a relationship with. Fraser, you've written in your Telegraph column how often you hear people saying that Keir Starmer lacks ideas, lacks a programme. He's got to where he is more through Tory misfortune uh, than Labour's own message. So do you think we can see a world where Tony Blair and his institute are doing quite a bit of the intellectual work, all the heavy lifting, and then that is then transferred into Labour policy if there is a Labour government? Well, that is going to be the big question. What form of advice will Tony Blair be giving? Of course, as John says, he can be there as a shoulder to cry on in the way that, you know, John Major may have poured a whiskey for David Cameron now and again comparing notes about the Eurosceptics and how awful they were. Or does Blair intend to be a advocate of certain policies and take the role of a think tanker? It's not quite clear to me. Perhaps John can let me know if the Blair Institute is a think tank, whether it's a, a global advisory business or whether it's a combination of both because I'm not sure we've seen very much of its size and sophistication before. We're talking um, hundreds of people, resources far bigger than any UK think tanks, and the UK think tanks tend to be pretty uh, modest affairs, about a dozen staff. If that, a few backers might stop them from going bust one year to the next, 
They might come up with a, a big idea, for example, one that I'm involved with, the Centre for Social Justice, came up with the idea of welfare reform, which was taken up by the Cameron government. Also, the Modern Slavery Act, that was inspired by the Centre for Social Justice uh, because they had donors who believed in that agenda. And that's the way think tanks work. You get people with money who want to influence public life for the better, put their money towards causes they agree with, um, and be that cracking down on modern slavery or welfare reform. And sometimes it can be more industrial. You might have a digital ID industry that would stand to make lots of money if the UK government were to embark upon digital identity cards. Now, I think we can see some of that money coming into the Blair Institute, and in turn, we can see the Blair Institute proposing ID cards, not just for adults, but for kids as well, in the form of education passports or some similar scheme. Now, this isn't to say that Blair is doing this cynically for money. We all know he was a big ID cards advocate when he was prime minister, but he is back on this agenda and he's got the money and resource to come up with some pretty oven-ready policies for Keir Starmer to slap into his big uh, number 10 kitchen and make into policy quite quickly. Now, this, I think, will raise scrutiny issues because ultimately, who benefits from these policies? Are we going to have, for example, a Starmer government not mentioning ID cards as manifesto, but coming up with ID cards anyway, in a method of which which will tend to benefit the clients of the Tony Blair Institute. Now, I can see lots of questions along those lines if we get to that stage, which, by the way, we might not. It might simply stop at Tony Blair just offering his um, open door or open moat or whatever the appropriate analogy is for his country house to Keir Starmer when he's in checkers, come over, let's compare notes. But we have to remember that if Blair were to offer the full power of this institute to Starmer, it would be a more generous offer than many recent British prime ministers have had, simply because a think tank here was so small. Blair has quite quietly changed all that, come back bigger, better, more powerful, with an incredibly impressive operation of people paid a lot more than your average special advisor, and probably the average, the quality of the average Blair Institute staffer, I suspect, would be a lot higher than you would get in number 10 itself. By the way, I also imagine there's a quite significant staff transfer after the general election. So these are all things we'd have to keep an open eye out for. John, what do you say to that? Is is the Tony Blair Institute, you know, the mother of all think tanks, or would you call it something else? Look, I think it, um, I think it definitely is a think tank and a different type of think tank than we've had uh, on the centre left for a long time. Partly because it's scale, there really isn't anything that size. I mean, the think tank think tanks depend on support uh, by people who want to develop ideas, which they hope will influence a government and force. So much of the last period, Labour have seemed so far from government, no think tank's been able to be, really be in business. The IPPR a shadow of their former self. And you remember for John Smith and then, um, you know, uh, for, for John Smith and then Tony, they ran the Commission on Social Justice, which gave a kind of big uh, spine to what, um, uh, what the, what the, what the, what the what new Labour eventually did on, in, in social policies. But two things I'd say. One is it's really clear how much President Biden and Biden's thinking is influencing uh, the Labour government. You know, Rachel Reeves' Securonomics draws on Bidenomics, which you know, people that, people who are close to, to Starmer leadership like to point at Jake Sullivan, uh, the, the National Economic Advisor, his, his speech on the new Washington consensus, a state that intervenes, a strategic state. 
industrial policy. Uh, when I was in DC recently, Democrats were saying to me that a big finding that they've had in government is that actually industrial policy is foreign policy and industrial policy is trade policy. And the difficulty about trade policy is that trade treaties take forever to negotiate. But when you decide to um, onshore, reshore, friendshore, you're actually taking trade decisions, industrial decisions, foreign policy decisions. So there's something about the landscape in which the, the, the a star government would operate, which has actually been set by the broader progressive movement and, and the changes in the states, I think, are because Biden took onto his campaign team some Bernie Sanders uh, policy thinkers. So there's lots, there's lots of things going on here. And I think, you know, as influential as Tony, Tony Blair, any of Tony's single ideas, is the fact that the pandemic was a moment uh, in which the state was back, and the state was back in all kinds of ways, restricting liberties, but also funding businesses and funding and you know, funding paychecks and all kinds of very interventionist kind of state in, in, in many forms, which obviously strengthened the confidence of social democrats around the world, progressives around the world. So for me, the, import, the importance of Tony's Institute is its size and its global reach, which means, and that is in, in essence also part of the business model of embedding staff within, within governments. And so I don't think the UK is going to be a prime target. And going back to my time uh, in number 10, the idea that a think tank can affect government policies, number 10 finds it really hard to affect government policies. That's the thing about an underpowered number 10, which we still have in the UK, is it's very hard to affect the policies within individual departments. Be, those will be down to the combination of the ministers who lead, you know, whereas in health and social care, but the constraints are put on them by the Treasury. And there is, in one sense, one feels with Rachel and Pat McFadden and the Treasury team, there's a very strong consonance between Labour Treasury team thinking and Treasury orthodoxy. Now, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but actually, you know, the biggest think tank in British politics is uh, His Majesty's Treasury. And so how that, that, that unpacks itself. And the final thing is, I'd say, which really picks up on that, that, that the question about it, you know, the, the, the financial constraints are going to be real. The, the longest, longest standing Labour think tank is obviously the Fabian Society, which is actually an affiliated part of the Labour Party, which part, well, was part of the foundation of the Labour Party in, 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 in 1918 when it created a membership organisation. And the Fabians' most recent report on social care, which was sponsored by one of the uh, one of the affiliated unions, Unison, that has been as highly regarded by West Street, but also I understand from sources it's highly regarded in Number Ten as well as a really good piece of work about what the future social care could look like. The report itself fails to answer the question who will pay and how, which is the fundamental question uh, around the public services. And I think that. A bigger influence on policy development is going to be going to be those those genuine real constraints uh, on on spending and the caution around Keir and uh, and Rachel. So I, I see it in a, I see it in a different way. I think it's been really helpful to have a, as rich a, a source as at the TBI. I can't actually specifically draw a line between any of those policies and what's in the National Policy Forum documents, which are going to be produced fully amended after the most recent. Labour Party internal policy process uh, this summer, and I think it is the big the, the big picture is always the big picture. Tony's back; he's influential, and he sees in Keir Starmer a Labour leader who could be a Labour Prime Minister, and and, and you know that's a rarity in my party, sadly. Yep. 
the big difference is that the Fabian Society has got something like eight people, very high quality people. The Tony Bloom Institute has got 750. So you know, the, the scale is just... But, but I think John is quite right to say that this time around, Blair doesn't appear to be seeking to influence the bigger strategies. Are you going to be interventionist to free market? Where is Labour going to sit? He is coming up this time with more sort of bespoke ideas. Like, here's how ID cards could work. Here's how a child's gem passport could work. I think one of his ideas was ways of diverting pension fund money into places the government would rather hug them. So these are far more the sort of um, bespoke products, if you like, rather than trying to think this is, this is our built vision for the future, or maybe other. So um, I think it's quite true that um, the, the Rachel Reeves is right now trying to... Um, Aligned herself with, with the Bidenomics interventionists um, model, which is having mixed results, I think, um, in, in the States and in Europe. But nonetheless, that is what her chosen platform. We'll find out, I think, if Blair has influence if in a couple of years' time we do see our um, kids going off to school with their digital ID card, or if, if we do see our, our pension money being diverted into a, a place where government believes needs more investment. So it could be those, those level of things. But I think, like John, I think the biggest important thing is that Starmer and Blair are happy to hang out together. Even Gordon Brown wasn't happy to hang out with Tony Blair when he became Prime Minister. And I remember when I, when I first um, tweeted out my piece saying, look, Tony Blair's coming back. I was inundated or reply saying, great, in that case, I'm going to join the Labour Party. So there is, you know, still, there are many people out there who have longed for a return to Blair-style Labour policies who didn't see that in Miliband and who do see that coming now. Of course, the reason why Labour hasn't tended to walk down the Blairite route so far, and the reason why voices like John's have not been this close to um, you know, the Labour front benches as I would have liked them to have been, has been because Labour thought there weren't any votes in that anymore. Because this was the late 90s, it was like West Wing, right? This was the, It had his era, it was great. Blair, the world has moved on from Blair. We have never, I think, seen a Prime Minister who's come back with so great a think tank, with so powerful political apparatus, with the kind of apparatus which you can certainly see prime ministers and governments availing themselves of. Because when you're in the government, as John knows, John was in the, you, if you're a secretary of state, you can appoint two or three people. That's about it. So the actual ability to pick up the phone and talk to a friendly think tank, which is willing to put, in Blair's case, dozens of people on whatever project you want. I mean, Tony, Tony Blair Institute employs probably six or seven times as many advisors as the entire UK government does at the moment, political advisors. The Sunak and um, Johnson era has seen larger uh, numbers of advisors appointed to, 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 to individual cabinet ministers. And look, I think you read a really good point about there being a constituency for, for, for some form of new, new Labour revival. And I'd say that is the blue wall, isn't it? It's the seats, the seats, around, seats around, the, um, uh, around London which are Tory seats, which are sometimes thought of as being Tory Lib Dem marginals. But the way that the demographics of the Southeast, the Great Southeast are changing with professional couples moving out of London and living, living in Hitchin or Stevenage or Basingstoke, uh, the change of the nature of the, of the work around there, the financial service industry is a big employer in about half a dozen cities around London. And, and, and probably more than that, and related, I think, to the housing point, the continued lack of a, an agenda from the Conservative Party that appeals to people under 35 or under 40 and the way that the, 
that, that when in doubt, the current government seems to double down on policies for the over 60s. That leads to an, op- an opening in politics of a more suburban, but now moved out to, 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 to commuter towns, more suburban, more professional, more white-collar, more, more educated, more socially liberal, younger constituency has just been left wide open for the Labour Party. And I think in that, in that sense, Tony is an ideal voice of reassurance for some of those people who may not be very political. And you see Tony not as, as, as not through all of the, the different lenses that the highly politicised debate inside the Labour Party season, but they see him as that was a reasonably good time. Britain was reasonably, you know, we, we, we were big in the world. We won the Olympics. We had, there's, there's, you know, the general vibes of new Labour and Tony in government are preferable to what we have at the moment. I think leaving a gap in the market is always bad in politics. And I think Tony is assigned to, assigned to some of those voters, look, you know, but Labour's coming home, uh, to coin a phrase. And we will, of course, also look to see how many Tony Blair Institute staff are hired to be special advisors should Labour take power, um, which would be one of our first indicators, perhaps. Thank you, John. Thank you, Fraser. And this podcast was not sponsored by the Tony Blair Institute. 